Welcome to the Calvary Chapel South Bay Sermon Podcast. We are a large, multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Los Angeles, California, and we'd love to have you visit us for a service if you're in the L.A. area. Visit ccsouthbay.org to learn more about us and to find out service times. If you have any questions, shoot us an email at hello at ccsouthbay.org. Enjoy today's sermon, and we hope to see you at church soon. Amen, amen. Sweet time of worship. Amen, church. I know you're getting tired of being online, as I said this morning, but uh, this too shall pass, so pray for that uh, release, we hope, a week from tomorrow. I'll be reviewing all of the things that have gone on for the last three weeks and uh, hopefully set us free to where we can gather in a meaningful way uh, here in the sanctuary. In the meantime, uh, men's, women's, and marriage study uh, which we believe we can uh, confine to a hundred person minimum, which is our maximum, which is where we're supposed to be. Uh, those will be getting in uh, two weeks, and so uh, make sure that you're tuned in to our email. So CC South Bay forward slash connect. We'll be getting all the word out uh, that way on what will be going on during those studies. In the meantime, uh, tonight, if you turn in your Bibles to Hosea uh, chapter five, Hosea five. And we find the sentence pronounced, and as you've been with us here in this study, as we're moving fairly rapidly through these chapters, uh, because in their context, they're they're a narrative about the children of Israel, but they really speak to us in this way. God's character has never changed. The way he views sin has never changed. Uh, The way he deals with sin has changed changed in that we now can have forgiveness of our sin by faith in Jesus Christ, but he still hates sin, and he still does not expect it to be in the life of his children. And so in this particular chapter, we find Hosea now back in the court of the Lord. The bailiff is going to go back into the courtroom, and the judge is going to be brought into the courtroom, and the court of the Lord is going to have a verdict rendered, and that verdict is about to be read, and Israel is going to get, in essence, these things brought to their attention that are the charges against them. What what is going on in the children of Israel's life uh, that the Lord would bring them to this place, that he would allow this incredible devastation uh, to come their way, which would be the Assyrian invasion. And so would you pray with me and let's see what we can glean uh, from the children of Israel and their time as they walked in rebellion to the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness in the face of our mistakes and our failures, God, that you are still good and you delight to forgive and to be Uh, kind and gentle to us. Lord, but your character has never changed and you still hate sin. You still are actively engaged in making sure that we know which way is the right way and that we should walk in it. And so we pray, God, that you would speak to us through your word, through this time that we'll spend together, and that you would bless us as we receive from you by your spirit, your instruction. So speak to your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I find it interesting, the the correlation between this particular chapter and our time uh, that we shared this morning in Luke's Gospel in chapter 8, because there really is a common theme 
Uh, there, there's a place that we as the church need to really recognize uh, that as God's character cannot change, it's immutable. He is who he is. He'll always be who he is. And unlike us, we mere human beings who change our opinion, change our mind, change the way we see things, we, we situa- situationally look at things and we, we come up with a new conclusion based on the day and time, uh, the Lord doesn't do that. He, he has always had the same judgment on sinful behavior and how God sees it uh, in our day and time is exactly how he saw it during the days of Israel of old. And so what we're going to see here in this first uh, few verses, verses 1 through 7, is Israel's determination as this pronouncement is made about what's wrong with them, what's going on, is that they were determined to continue in sin. And why this is important to us is God is still against us if we determine in our own hearts to sin. doesn't mean he hates us. It just means that we're going to have an adversary because he hates sin so much. We will not only not have his help, we will actually have him against us if we determine to sin. And so let's try and look at it in that particular way. And notice this statement, they do not direct their deeds towards turning to their God there in verse 4 uh, here in chapter 5. In other words, their heart is not inclined to the Lord. When we lose our, our moorings, when we lose our bearings, when we start to look at the world through the lens of perhaps political correctness, or we look at uh, through the, the lens of the will of the majority, or, or we happen to look at our world through some uh, political stance, or we, we begin to gaze on our world as Christians through any other lens than the lens of Scripture, we're going to end up deceived. Or we're going to end up with a false view. Our starting place for the body of Christ and our ending place for the body of Christ is always to view everything about life through the lens of Scripture. What does God say? What does he think? What does he want? How would he have his his children to act in this situation? In in this sense, the children of Israel knew things were were bad. It, It was literally killing them. It was harmful. It was wrong. They could see all these things. It was destroying their lives. It was bringing chaos. It was bringing calamity. But they were still doing it anyway. And it gives you a sense of exactly how powerful it is. And so when we look at Israel's place here in chapter 5, as Hosea is picturing the the priests of Israel, the house of Israel, there in verse 1 of chapter 5, as he he takes time to say, this is about you guys, he's going to then go on and say, look, you're a mess. You keep doing what you're not supposed to do, and you expect God to overlook it, and he's not going to. It wasn't that they could not turn from their sin. It was that they will not turn from their sin. It is always for us as the church, as believers today under grace, it's still the same battle. The battle is in my mind, and the battle is against my will. Instead of wanting God's will, very often what I want is my will to be done on earth. And the children of Israel suffered greatly for this. And so we have to bear in mind that Jesus, as we saw this morning, if you were with us, I'd encourage you to watch that study uh, later if you, if you did not tune in already to that. Jesus is 
light. He is truth. And there in John chapter 3, beginning in verse 19, he said, this is a way of introduction. This is, verse 19 of John 3 says, the condemnation. In other words, here's the problem. Here's the thing that is, that is the issue. Here's what we're dealing with is another way that Jesus, speaking these words, spoke to the disciples that the light has come into the world. In other words, he says that actually creates a conflict. You see, when people don't know the truth, they also don't know they're sinning. When there is no light, then darkness seems normal is another way to look at it. If you don't understand what the truth is, then you also aren't going to know if you're living a lie. But this is the condemnation. Jesus said that the light has come into the world. And men love darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. In other words, once the light switch goes on, that's what releases us to be able to see that there's actually a problem in the choices that we've made. Verse 20 there in John chapter 3 says this, For everyone practicing evil literally hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. In other words, where there is light, there is an exposure of darkness. You you can understand it. You can see it. And so when the light goes on, when God's word shines onto a situation, when the truth has been made known, then what happens is you're forced to choose. It's not that you can't choose to do good. It's not that you can't choose to do right. It's that you look at the situation and you judge it and you base it on your will instead of God's will. And you say, look, no, I'm not going to do that. I know I shouldn't engage in that behavior. I know I shouldn't act that way. I know I shouldn't say those things. I know I shouldn't be bitter and mean-spirited and angry. I know God's word says that. The light's gone on. But I don't want to do that right now. I, I enjoy these things that I say that might wound somebody else because they wounded me. To that person, to us, to me, to all of us, But he who does the truth, verse 21 of John 3 says, comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. And so God's speaking to us tonight here through Hosea the prophet in a time when the children of Israel clearly knew exactly what God expected of them, but they refused to do it. And so the verdict comes in. Hear this, O priest, verse 1, Hosea chapter 5. Take heed, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king, for yours is the judgment. And now he goes on to give this very long list of things that were problematic in the lives of the children of Israel. And I want you to take close note of them. Underline some of them. Ask yourself simple questions. Am am I doing any of these things in my life? Am I sinning against the Lord? Is my life filled with things that shouldn't be there as a child of God? This is your judgment, in other words, because you have been a snare to Miss Peh. In other words, your witness is fouled. There, there is a, there's a place in your life where you know what to do, but you don't live that way. Is a net spread on Tabor? Is your purity covered up with something else? That's what the word Tabor means. It means purity. 
and mispah means witness or watching. It, it, it's really kind of a little play on words. He's saying, look, are you snaring your witness? Are you covering your purity? The revolters are deeply involved in slaughter. In other words, the, the people that are standing against the Lord are actually involved in the very things that are going to befall them by the hands of the Assyrians. They're not treating people with justice. They're not treating people with kindness. They're caught up in the same exact things, though I rebuke them all. You see, God is faithful to remind us of what he expects. He's, he's done that by giving us his word. And I think this is especially true here in America where we've had such a history of, of having access to our Bibles, being able to teach the truth. We're, we're not repressed as people are in, in China where the church is being driven underground. We're, it's not as though we're living in, a, in a, a highly problematic Arabic society where it might even be illegal to be a Christian. We have access to our Bibles. We know what they say. And even people who don't profess to know the Lord personally very often can quote Bible verses to you. And sometimes even in context. I know Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. Those two words are interchangeable in this particular context. Ephraim was the northern tribes known as Israel. And so they're the the ten tribes that were in the north, as opposed to Judah and Benjamin in the south. They weren't hidden. For now, O Ephraim, you commit harlotry and Israel is defiled. It's like, you guys know better than this and you're doing it anyway. They do not direct their deeds, here it is, verse 4, toward turning to their God. In other words, they're unchanged by the knowledge of the truth. The light goes on and they keep walking in darkness. There, there is a clear indicator here that something is wrong, but they, the light goes on. And you all, if you have a reasonably modern vehicle, our vehicles are so filled with indicator lights, most of the time they're off, right? And you're driving down the road, and if you have a newer car, you may have a touch screen that will have some of these things on it. But for most of us, going back many decades now, we've had things like a check engine light or some type of other thing on your dash, which normally is not illuminated. It sits in the background, if you will. But the moment you have a problem, that light goes on. It's supposed to grab your attention. God's word does that. It's unnecessary for these lights to be on all the time by the spirit. They're part of who you are as a believer. And they're in the background. The truth of God's word is at work in you. It's there, but it's unnecessary that the light be on. This is the problem that the children of Israel were facing during this time before grace, but having clearly uh, the first five books of Moses and likely most of what we would call the Old Testament is either being written at the time or is undertaken already. And so here the children of Israel have a check engine light go on. But they were involved in slaughter. They, They were not careful about their witness. They, they didn't care about the purity of the Lord. They had foul judgment. They were committing harlotry. They were defiling themselves with false gods. And he goes on, their deeds are not directed towards certain. The light goes on and they're going, so what? I'm just going to keep driving. Some of you have probably done this. 
you get tired of looking at that light and you put something over it. You grab a napkin, a piece of tape. You just, it's like, I don't want to see it. Church, this is really dangerous when God turns on the check engine light. When all of a sudden you're going, mm, no, I know there's something wrong here because the light's on. The Holy Spirit goes, bink. And you're like, nah, nah I'm not going to do that. And so what do you do? Instead of doing what you're supposed to do, which in the case of the check engine light, you're supposed to go find a mechanic. You're supposed to take it into the shop. You're supposed to go to the one who, in essence, has the manual about how the vehicle was built and what you're supposed to do with that particular light. Instead of going there, you go, nah, I don't think it really means anything. And then your engine blows up. You see, the light was on. The notification was made. The problem was indicated, but you don't pay attention to it. You simply keep going the way you were going. For the spirit of harlotry is in their midst. They do not even know the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. In other words, they're so bad that they're Pride against the Lord, they're willing to say, forget it, God, we don't even want you anymore. Therefore, Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity, and Judah also stumbles with them. This is the problem. You see, very often when the church begins to sin, when Israel sins, making not a direct equivalence, but a typology, Just as Israel in the Old Testament sinned and the nations around them fell, when Israel began to stumble, so the southern kingdom, Judah, also began to stumble because they're watching their supposed righteous brothers in the north stumble over these things repetitively, and eventually exactly what happens in Romans 1 happens to them. They began to approve of the sins. They began to allow those things to come into their own lives. And with their flocks and herds, they shall go and seek the Lord, but they will not find him. This is a painful warning. And I don't mean to make this down because there's fortunately an answer to it. It's just turning to the Lord. But notice what it says God does. If you won't turn, there does come a point in time when God says, you want it? You got it. And he has withdrawn himself from them. They have dwelt, dealt treacherously with the Lord. They've begotten, notice this, how sad is it when the most righteous people, the people who knew the Lord, the people who got the, the Torah, the people who understood what God wanted, the ones who were given the tabernacle in the wilderness, the ones who were offered all of this information from God himself, about God himself, the people that should have known better and should have acted righteously, how bad is it when the church begets pagan children? How bad is it when, when there's so little effect of the righteousness of God in the church itself, or in this case, Israel? And again, not a direct equivalence, but there is some typology here. If Israel should have known better because they had the word, When the church should know better because we have the word, how bad is it 
when the ones that should know better don't live righteously. And the result is their children don't even follow the Lord. They're pagan. And now a new moon shall devour them and their heritage. They go right back to worshiping the false gods is what the Lord is saying. They don't follow Yahweh. And the truth is in this situation, Israel is guilty as charged. Here's the summation of the evidence, if you will. And whether you apply it as it should, absolutely to Israel, or or whether you take a little bit of ability to say this has a spiritual significance to the New Testament church in saying that, it applies to me. It's like when I know what God wants and I don't do it, I shouldn't expect God to hang around and, and just go, well, you know, keep on doing whatever you want. God withdraws himself. And in fact, I think to its most awful extreme, one begins to ask, ask the question, does, do you even know God? Are you even one of God's kids? Were you saved in the first place? Or worse yet, if you want to go to the very most extreme, were you saved and somehow forfeited that? And it doesn't matter to me which side of those two doctrinal bents you happen to be on, the result's the same. You have zero assurance of your salvation when you persist in sin. And God's saying, look, if you keep doing this, I'm going to go bye-bye. I'm going to walk away from you. You're not going to find me. You're going to call, but you're not going to get an answer. I very frequently will have people to come and whether they see me in my office before this COVID thing, we'll get back to that. Or, or whether it's by phone or email. And they'll just explain away some behavior that they absolutely know is wrong. They will tell me first sentence of the paragraph. I know this is wrong. And then the fateful word, but is interjected. I know this is wrong. I know I shouldn't do this, but. My husband this, or my wife that, or my kids this, or my boss that. I know I shouldn't do this, but. And they keep going that direction, and they wonder why their prayer life is dead. They wonder why they can't open their Bible and have anything make sense. They wonder why their Christian friends are saying, you know, until you get through this this journey in the wilderness, we can't have anything to do with you. They wonder why the voice of God is absent from their life. The bottom line is, your Bible tells you that God will do this if you persist in sin. And the strongest case is found there in Hebrews chapter 10. And again, whether you take this to mean that someone is saved and then they lose their salvation, or whether you take this as someone who is never saved and the result is proven out, the result is the same. The result's the same. Verse 26, for if we sin willfully after having received the knowledge of the truth, and let's be intellectually honest, the knowledge of the truth is the knowledge of salvation. This is written to Hebrew Christians. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation, which will devour the adversaries. In other words, God only has two types of people on this planet, people who love him and people who don't. 
people who are saved and people who are not. And anyone who has rejected the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He's saying, look, the Old Testament way was this. If you died without a relationship with, with Yahweh, you were in trouble. How much worse, verse 29, if Hebrews 10 says, how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought to be worthy of he who has trampled the Son of God underfoot? How much worse would it be under grace? If under the law, now let's be honest, the law was hard. The law was difficult. The law was painful. The law extracted tremendous cost. The law was nearly impossible, if not completely impossible, to fully follow, at least in your flesh. If under the law people were punished, how much more so do you think God would take very seriously when you dismiss the grace of God? How much more serious do you think that would be? trampling the Son of God who died on Calvary's cross for your sins underfoot. You say, nah, I don't really want God's grace. Or counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing. In other words, like you could go get it somewhere else. Like you went into Walmart and there it was, like 400 different types of salvation. It's just like, well, I'll just take this one this week. You know, this whole thing of dying to myself and picking up my cross and following Jesus and being a doer of the word, I don't like that part. I like this one over here that says I can do anything I want and just keep going that way. So I'm going to grab this salvation. A common thing. Because your salvation was was instituted by a spirit of grace. In other words, unmerited favor by God. You didn't earn it. You can't deserve it. And so the writer of Hebrews here Reminds us, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people, and it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You see, what I want to do when I take my last breath is fall into the hands of the living God by grace through faith. And my best assurance of that is for me to do exactly what God's word says I should do. So when I know the light has gone on, when I see what it is that the Lord wants, I should not be walking in idolatry. I should not be walking after false gods. I should not be doing what God has told me clearly not to do. I shouldn't be engaged in sinful behavior. I should not walk in darkness. The children of Israel tried to have it both ways. They wanted God to bless them, but they wanted to keep sinning. And God's saying, mm-mm, no, you're guilty as charged. You, you can't do that. You, you, you can't take my goodness and then give me your wickedness. If you take my goodness, you give up your wickedness. You, you relinquish your right to be a, a rebellious, sinful person. You see, I don't know where that line is specifically for you. I don't know how far God will go in these things. I'm not sure where the point of rebellion leading unto damnation is for anyone specifically, but I know what my Bible says. 
that I am his child indeed if I keep his commandments, that I'm to be a doer of the word and not a hearer only deceiving myself. I know that what I believe should also be what I should do. And the Bible says you can't have it both ways. Now, before anyone gets too fearful and afraid, God also doesn't hold us to the standard of perfection. We are sinners, and we do need a Savior, and that salvation has come by grace and through faith. And so it's not a matter of sinless perfection, but it is a matter of sinless direction. Do you understand what I said? It's not sinless perfection, as in you better be perfect, but the direction you're going should be towards sinlessness. It should be that you should care about what God cares about and think about how God thinks about things and do what God wants you to do. That is the clear, plain, authoritative teaching of Scripture. This whole concept that a Christian can accept God's grace and then do nothing with it with regard to your own actions is not taught in Scripture. And we need to roundly, concisely condemn that theology that says you can keep doing whatever you please. Just make sure you say the sinner's prayer. That is nowhere found in your Bible. It says you will have your mind transformed. You'll think differently as a child of God. There will be something that happens with your actions. If you've received the grace of God, you'll begin to live it out. And in like kind with the children of Israel, as God had blessed them like no other nation in history, God expected them to live a life that indicated they were his. He says, look, you guys can't keep doing these things. It's going to go horribly wrong for you. And to that end, what happens to them? God's voice goes silent. That's what happened to the children of Israel. And maybe is that nowhere better illustrated than the life of Saul. Great King Saul, he withdrawn himself from the Lord. The Lord ends up withdrawing himself from Saul. Saul had no message come to him from the Lord. So what does Saul do? Saul begins to knock on the door of hell instead of the door of heaven. He consults mediums. He goes back to witchcraft lawlessness. He literally resorts to those things that God hates. And in that short period of time that that Saul was in power, he leads the children of Israel away from the Lord, not towards the Lord. And ultimately, Saul pays for that with his life. Me personally, I'm praying for God's grace in Saul's life but I see no reason to believe that I'm going to see Saul in heaven. He had the opportunity, just like Abraham, to walk by faith. But he chose to walk by sight. He chose to do whatever he wanted to do his own way. And he paid a price for it. When we sink into those deep sins, when we refuse to repent, when we allow things to have power over us, and we will not turn from them, it's supposed to scare us just like that check engine light. It's supposed to go, man, what is wrong? It's supposed to turn us back to the Lord. 
And probably some of you are asking, well, how can this even happen in the life of a believer? How can this happen? Well, here's what happens. You, you become insensitive to the things of God. You stop caring what God thinks. You begin to act in your own arrogance, your own pride. You begin to stumble, you begin to fall, and eventually exactly as Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 29 says, is not my word like a fire, declares the Lord, like a hammer that breaks rock into pieces? In other words, God doesn't want to have to beat us with his word. He wants us to gently receive it and be changed and transformed, have a soft heart where the word of God goes in and it's engrafted into who we are. It becomes the substance of our being. And as we walk in that, we're well-pleasing to God. But if you don't want what his word says and your heart becomes hard, pretty soon that word just bounces off. And instead of it being something that's soft and molds and shapes you, it becomes a hammer and it breaks you. And now all of a sudden you're in direct conflict with the Lord. In other words, God was speaking, but they were not listening. God's going, look, I'm talking to you. Can you hear my voice? By their actions, they were saying, no, we're not hearing a thing. By their actions, they were going the wrong way. And while I don't want to belabor this point, I think we here in America who call ourselves Christians might want to wake up and smell the coffee on this one. We might want to take a little bit of stock in what the Bible clearly says and see if we're actually being doers of it. Because I think there are a lot of people who think by default that because we're a Christian nation that they're automatically Christians because they've gone to church for even a vast majority of their life, that they're Christians, because they have done something that's called church or religious duty or activity, that somehow that places them in God's grace. If you have received Christ, if you have believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, then the direct result of that salvation experience is transformation and sanctification. You cannot be unchanged and claim that you are a child of God. Now, some of you are saying, oh, legalist, legalist, preaching works. No, I'm preaching the truth. You can't keep your sin and have Jesus too. If God punished the children of Israel for it, he allowed them to nearly be wiped out to extinction by the Assyrians, followed by the Babylonians, followed by the Greeks, followed by the Romans, followed by the Nazis. If God would do that to his chosen people to get their attention, if that type of check engine light is in the hands of the Lord, and he's saying, look, here's the light. Boom, it's on. You're going the wrong way. Stop doing that. Go to the shop. Get the problem taken care of, and we'll reset that light. If God would allow that for Israel, do you think he's going to spare the United States of America if we keep going down this road of confusing politics with passion for Christ? Do you think that the Lord is going to allow us to rely on our programs instead of the power of the living God through his word? 
Do you think he's going to continue to strive with us when we make our own personal revelation of the word instead of actually doing what it says? I don't believe he will. And it causes me grave concern for the church in America. Because I think we have done a disservice to the king by confusing righteousness with politics. By confusing the word of God with the word of some person who has a view on something. I think it's time that the church in America get back to following Christ and doing what his word says. As best as we possibly can. Stop confusing the nations around us. Just like Israel confused Judah. So I believe a portion of the church is confusing other Christians by making Jesus into something that Jesus is not. Jesus is not a political pawn. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and every word that is him is true. But that's not necessarily true about all these other things that America seems to be concerned with right now. In Christ alone is our hope. In his word alone is where we get the truth. And walking in the spirit is how that gets applied. And I think we would be very well served to keep the main thing, the main thing, the one thing, the right thing. The prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 56 reminded us that the watchmen, the people whom God set on the walls of Jerusalem had become blind. They were ignorant They were, in Isaiah's words, in God's word through Isaiah the prophet, dumb dogs that could no longer bark. They were sleeping. They were lying down. They were loving slumber. In other words, they were asleep at the wheel. They knew what God's word said. But they stopped barking at the right thing and started barking at the wrong thing. Might be a good warning for the church. Similarly, in Isaiah 62 and verse 6 and 7, I've set watchmen on your walls of Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent. Notice it says of the Lord. We're to make mention of the Lord. We're to call in the name of the Lord. We're to lead people in following after Christ. We're to know his word We're to be concerned about the things that God is concerned about. We're to repeat what he has said frequently and often and give him no rest till he establishes until he makes Jerusalem the praise in the earth. For the people of Jerusalem, it was that they were to be reminded when anything that was contrary to the Lord was upon them. Notice it doesn't give any indication of the enemies, just simply those things which were contrary to the Lord. Make mention of the Lord, that which was pleasing to God. I think the church needs revival. I believe that to some degree we might even be producing illegitimate children. We might be doing what the children of Israel were doing. We're making a God after our own liking. 
And while I'm not trying to be too terribly specific here, I'm just simply saying when the church loses its savor, when, when the word of God is no longer the standard, but it, it's something else, when it's what we think it should be, when God's word clearly speaks and we will not do it, we are putting ourselves in the same place the children of Israel were at during the time of the writing of this particular book that we call Hosea some 800 years before Christ came. And it kind of begs the question that the 94th Psalm speaks to in that sense. O Lord, to whom vengeance belongs, O God, to whom vengeance belongs, shine forth. Render the punishment to the proud. How long, O Lord, will the wicked triumph? And he goes on in that particular psalm to remind us that the instruction comes from the Lord. You instruct, O Lord. You teach out of your law. You have dug a pit for the wicked. You've got this under control, Lord, but we have to do things your way. We have to repeat often what it is that your word says about things, not what the common opinion of the people is. I'm hearing an awful lot of the church Say, well, you know, I I just want to be in agreement with what everybody else is saying. Well, you may not be able to be in agreement with what everybody else is saying. As a child of God, you're supposed to be in agreement with what God says. That's not to be intentionally contrary to the rest of the world. But in this world, you're going to have tribulation. But don't be dismayed. He's overcome it. And so for us, we're to be concerned about what the word of the Lord says and what it is. We don't want to become like Saul. He had the rebelliousness in his heart that became the sin of witchcraft. It was lawlessness. He just simply did what he wanted to do. And ultimately there in 1 Samuel 15, it says he rejected the word of the Lord. The children of Israel were in grave danger of outright rejecting the word of the Lord. And in fact, they would go on to do exactly that. Just as Proverbs 17.11 reminds us that it is the evil man who seeks only rebellion. And it gives us a, a very sad ending to that person. That the person who seeks rebellion therefore serves a cruel messenger that will be sent against them. And ultimately, we see the doom of those who go down that path. Now, I'm not trying to be too droll here. I'm not trying to pronounce judgment. I'm simply pointing us to the truth that we have time to change the direction. We have time to move. The path hasn't been firmly established. The church can wake up to this reality, and we can do better and do different. Because we don't know when God's going to say enough. We don't don't know when we're going to cross that line. Nobody knows that. That's why you don't want to go that way in the first place. You don't want God to have to say, I'm tired of your rebellious ways. I'm tired of you not doing what I've told you to do. I'm tired of you not listening. I am tired, and now I'm sending Assyria to you, O church in America. And maybe you're offended by that. I'm sorry if that's me, put it on me. But I want to be really direct here. 
I don't expect us to be treated any different than ancient Israel. And if America continues in this rebellious attitude towards God, I expect there to be an Assyria. I expect there to be a day of reckoning. Why? Because the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that God is faithful and he chastens those whom he loves. He loves us enough to say enough. You're going to ignore my check engine light. You're going to keep going that direction. Then I'm sending you an Assyria. That dreaded word that Israel never wanted to hear. And no Christian should want to hear our equivalent in the age of grace. But nonetheless, God's character has not changed. He's not different. He's still holy and righteous and just. And he still hates sin. And to that very end, the sentence here is pronounced in in the remainder of this chapter. Blow the ram's horn, verse 8, in Gibeah. The trumpet in Ramah. Cry aloud in Beth-Evan. Look behind you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall be desolate in the day of rebuke. In other words, as we saw in the words of Jesus as he rebuked, the wind and the waves. They're in chapter 8 of Luke's gospel. You don't want God to rebuke you. When he rebukes, things happen. Things stop. And it can be a stark reality for us to come to. Among the tribes of Israel, I will make known what is sure. In other words, don't make me tell you any stronger way is what God is saying. It's going to cost you. You're going to be desolate. The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. That was a a capital crime during that day and time. Landmarks were simply piles of stones put on the edge of someone's border. Their, Their property, in essence, was marked out by those things. And if you remove them, I will pour out my wrath on them like water. In other words, a flood will come into your land. He's saying, don't move the landmarks. Don't move the things that mark who I am. Don't remove the boundaries that I have set would be another way to say it. Don't take away the borders of my word. Don't make it say something it doesn't say. And don't say something with it that I don't intend. But at the same time, when I've said it, that is it. Those are the boundaries. Ephraim is oppressed and broken in judgment. Because he willingly walked by a human precept. Underline that one for today. The church is in trouble when we turn to human precepts that disagree with the word of God. When we turn towards people and away from the Lord, we are in deep, deep, deep trouble. If God would chastise his chosen people Israel, then he will chastise his children of grace, maybe in a more severe way. We have grace. None of us have had to go to the temple and offer sacrifice. None of us have had to experience the blood of bulls and goats being poured out. None of us have had to watch as the sacrifice for our sins was made in the courtyard. It was already made on Calvary's cross and we've received it simply by believing in his name. How much more do you think the Lord will hold us accountable? 
because he willingly walked by a human precept. Disobeyed the Lord and made up your own rules is effectively what it's saying. And therefore, I will be to Ephraim like a moth, to the house of Judah like rottenness. In other words, I will eat up everything. And when Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah saw his wound and Ephraim went to Assyria and to King Jerob, yet he cannot cure you, nor can he heal you of your wound. For I will be like a lion unto Ephraim, like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear them and go away. I will take them away and no one shall rescue And I will return again to my place till they acknowledge their offense. Notice why God's doing this. God chastens those whom he loves so they will repent and turn and come back to him. And I wonder if in our day and time, I wonder if the pain that we're experiencing right now, facing these awful things simultaneously, who would have thought, I think everyone thought the coronavirus was bad enough. And now we have racial injustice tearing apart the fabric of our country. The reactions to it, how we handle it. You think maybe perhaps the Lord is trying to get our attention? Could it be that he's trying to speak to us? Look, I'm tearing at you and I'm going to go away. And I'm going to return to my place until they acknowledge their offense. Maybe God's asking the church to stand up at this time. Maybe God's saying to us, seek my face. Look at verse 15. And in their affliction, they will earnestly or wholeheartedly is another word for earnest there. Seek me. You see, rebellion does this all the time. Always has, always will. When we make our own rules, when we make our own prophets, when we make our own precepts, when we make our own priests, when we do things our way, we end up away from God. And God loves us so much that he will eat away at everything we have built up. He'll eat away at our prosperity. He'll eat away at our relative peace in this country. He'll eat away at our ease. You see, this isn't Assyria yet. That's who God will use. But God's saying, look, when they come, it's actually me. I'm sending them. You kept going the wrong way. You kept trusting in the wrong thing. You kept doing what you want to do. You won't listen to me anymore. So I'm sending Assyria. That's going to be awful. Church, sin is rottenness. And it will do exactly what scripture says it will do. It will eat away at your bones and the end of it is death. That's why Romans 6 says what it says there in verse 23. The wages of sin is death. That's what you'll get paid for sin. That's what you get at the end of it. The forces of decay and destruction were already at work in this passage in the children of Israel, and they wouldn't listen. 
just kept going the way they want to go. And God says to them, look, I'm going to abandon you for a time. I'm going to turn my back. You keep going. I can't watch you do this. I won't watch you do this. And until you acknowledge that you're wrong, until you turn away from your wickedness, until you turn to my face, until you acknowledge me, until you seek my face, you're not going to hear from me anymore. You're going to have to go it on your own. And by the way, the prophet Isaiah saw exactly the same thing in Isaiah chapter 5. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God wants us to be true to who he is. And when we're not, we, just like the children of Israel, become ruined. We become rotten. They understood this. The children of Israel could not blame God. When Assyria came, they should have been going, we brought this on our own heads. And in much the same way, I pray. I pray that the church in our world, and especially here in America, where we have been so blessed, I pray that we wake up before God has to send us in Assyria, before this gets worse. Church, this, is, this has troubled me like I have never been troubled in my life as a believer. Not just as a pastor, I can't remember a time when I was more concerned for the soul of who we are as Christians in this country than right now. Because we who have the answers are pointing fingers. We're not pointing towards God. We who have the answers are are talking about the world's solutions and not God's solutions. We who should know better are engaging in many of the same things that got us into trouble in the first place. And if God chastened his own people, Israel, are we so daft as to think that we're going to be exempt? That we'll just have another bull market and everything will be fine? That somehow we'll just get through another election cycle and that'll fix it? I think it's time for the church to do some serious intercession for our nation. To think about what really matters. And it's Christ alone and him crucified for the sins of the world. Him is the answer. He's not an option. He's the answer. He's not a selection. He's not A, B, C, D, E, or F, whichever one you want. He is the only and he's A. And there is no one else. There is no other name under heaven whereby men must be saved. And so maybe you have some people in your life that are going, oh, we should do this or we should do that. What we should do is turn to the Lord. What we should do is get on our knees and pray. And when God's word speaks to a situation, we should do exactly what God's word says we should do. We should be bold without compromise. We should never believe 
that God isn't past spanking us. We should also believe that if we'll turn, he'll be gracious and kind and gentle and loving and forgiving, and he will cleanse us. And so the choice simply becomes, will we do what he wants or not? That was the choice for Israel. It's the choice for us. And I pray we choose Christ. Amen? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Lord, I thank you that you have been gracious and you have been kind and you have been long-suffering and you have overlooked so many of the things to this point. But Lord, maybe it is that you're no longer going to overlook them and you're asking the church to rise up with one voice and proclaim who you are to this world, to this nation, to our brothers and sisters, to those around us that don't know you yet. And so God, we give you our lives afresh and new. Lord, we ourselves repent of our parts in it. Lord, where we haven't spoken out against injustice. Lord, where we've been rebellious against these laws that were put in place to help keep us safe from this virus. Lord, where where we've stepped out in ways that shame your name instead of cause your name to be lifted up and glorified. Lord, would you help us to repent fully of those things and turn to you and Lord, make sure that people can see you. We're not obscuring you. We haven't put tape over the check engine light of our Christianity. And so God, we thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for being so gracious and kind and that is your heart. That's what you want to be to us. And so would we be to you what we should be, which is responsive, not rebellious, which is loving and kind and not vengeful, which is gentle and passionate, not contrary. Help us to be doers, Lord, of what your word says. Help us to walk with you in all of our ways for all of our days. In the name of our Savior Jesus, we pray these things. Thanks for listening, and we hope you were encouraged by today's message. If you have any questions or just want to check us out, make sure to visit us at ccsouthbay.org. God bless you guys, and we'll see you next week.